Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Okay. So, here at the Bay, we preach the Word. And today, we're going to start, or last night actually, we're going to start a series in Titus for the next uh, season here. So, it's my job today to kick that off with uh, Titus chapter 1. Hallelujah. So if you've got your Bibles here, you might like to <laughs> you might like to turn to the book of Titus. And uh, just while you're doing that, let me give you a little bit of the backstory to the book. So it's a short letter that Paul wrote to Titus, who was a Greek and had been converted under the ministry of Paul and uh, became one of Paul's co-workers, key workers, someone that he could really trust with the ministry. And the first time that Paul had been to Titus, uh, Paul had been to Crete, sorry, was under rather different circumstances. He'd been a prisoner of the Romans, and he was on his way to face trial in Rome. And as you know from the book of Acts, if you read the story, they sailed off to Crete, and uh, then, against Paul's advice, they tried to sail on, and the ship was shipwrecked, and uh, Paul was eventually washed up, along with the rest of them, at Malta. So it wasn't really what you would call a holiday on Crete. <laughs> wasn't a nice little break on Crete for Paul. His first experience of Crete was as a prisoner and as a shipwrecked prisoner. And, you know, at this time, many, many people are crossing the Mediterranean in dangerous ships and boats, aren't they? And many of them are experiencing shipwreck in those very waters where Paul faced the same thing. And the good news is that God brought him through that experience. And that sometime later he was able to go right back there to the place that he'd been shipwrecked and minister the word of God. And it was obviously pretty successful because when he left there, there was already a fledgling church there and he had to leave Titus there to get them in order and sort them out. Now Titus, as I say, was a Greek, but he was a good man. He was a man who could get things done and he was a trusted person that Paul could leave to get the job done. He was also a great diplomat was Titus, and uh, Paul appreciated him for that. Uh, in the Bible, we have 1 Corinthians and we have 2 Corinthians, but did you know that our 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians, because Paul wrote another letter in between in which he gave them a good dressing down, and he told them just what he thought about them. We would use email today. <laughs> But he, off he, he sent that letter, and uh, the Corinthians didn't take too kindly to that. But they did 
come round, and Titus was a key player in patching up the gap that was beginning to open up between the Corinthians and Paul. And he was the, uh, the key person who brought them back together again and said, look, come on, guys. Let's work this out together. So Paul appreciated him for that. And Paul went on to write what we now call Second Corinthians, which, of course, is one of the highlights of the scripture. And probably without Titus, that may not have happened. So... Titus is there on Crete, and he's got a job to do. So let's take a look at uh, Paul's advice to this young man as he sets about turning these raw recruits, these roughshod Gentile believers, into some kind of church that you could take your granny to <laughs> and not feel embarrassed. <laughs> so Titus 1.1. Paul a bondservant of God and, a, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So there's our first problem, isn't it? Right there. Paul, the bondservant of God. Hold on a minute, Paul. Paul, the slave, haven't you taught us, Paul, that we are free, that we are sons and daughters of the living God, that we've been set free from the yoke of slavery? Let's have a look at Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4. Didn't you say, Paul, in Galatians, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons? And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Jesus Christ. So hold on a minute, Paul. Are you changing your theology here from Corinthians to Titus? Well, we need to understand what we're slaves to or who we're slaves to and what we've been set free from. See, when you were born again, you were set free from your slavery to sin, to the God of this world. And you received the right to become a child of God. That's John chapter 1, verse 12. If you're born again, if you've given your heart to Jesus, given him your life, then you are you have the right to be called a child of God. Hallelujah. That's good. And if you struggle with that revelation, that's what you need to get first. You need to get that settled in your heart, that you have the right to be a son of God if you're trusting in Jesus. But once you've got that, and once that's bedded down in your heart, and you understand who you are in Christ, then God can give you the invitation to become his slave. And that's particularly the case if you feel a calling to any kind of leadership in the church. Let's look at Matthew 20. Let's look at the words of Jesus. Matthew 20. 
This is how it's supposed to work in the church. Matthew 20, verse 25. Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And he, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. And he came to serve. So it's our privilege to serve him in return. See, when you come to Jesus, you receive the right to be a son of God. But the invitation is to be a servant. That's our privilege. Sonship is our right. Servanthood is our privilege. Hallelujah. So, Paul here calls himself the slave of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ. And those two have to go together. In Bible thinking, you can't be an apostle and not be a slave, not be a servant, not be given over to the kingdom of God with every fiber of your being. Hallelujah. And that was Paul's experience. Now remember, these are friends talking together, Paul and Titus. And sometimes you can say things to your friends and they'll understand more than you can say in public. So that's the vibe between these two. And Titus would have understood that very well. Let's read on. So Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Hallelujah. So, the promise that we have from God is the promise of eternal life. Fantastic. No one else can promise that, only Jesus. And that is his promise to we who call ourselves Christians and who follow him. Now, what is eternal life? Well, we looked at this quite recently in Thessalonians. So let's just review that. First uh, Thessalonians 4.16 says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We shall always be with the Lord. That is eternal life. 
And whatever the nuances of your theology on that, the fact of the matter is that if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're going to be with him forever in glory. <laughs> Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Wow. See, one thing I've realized over the years is that your Christian faith is not meant to be a burden to you. It's not meant to be something that you labor under because you're never good enough. It's a comfort. And the harder the road that you're on, the greater the comfort that you can draw from knowing that Jesus is with us. He's with us today. He'll be with us tomorrow. He'll be with us for all eternity. Why? Because God cannot lie. It's right there in verse 2. God cannot lie. If you have the promise of God, if you've given him your heart, he cannot lie. You will be with him forever. And it doesn't matter what shape your life is in right now. And it doesn't matter how you judge yourself and how far short you feel that you fall. You will be with him forever. Why? Because he cannot lie. Hallelujah. I remember when I was first saved and we used to go up to take communion. And some weeks, you know, it was quite a service where we were then. It was, you know, it was quite a, a powerful ritual, if I can put it that way. So you would come up to the front and you would kneel and you would take the bread and the wine. And quite honestly, many was the time that I would go up there expecting not to come back. I would expect a bolt of lightning to blast me right there at the altar. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever felt that way. <laughs> but I certainly did. But God cannot lie. And now I understand a bit more about who I am as a son. That I'm forgiven. That I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah. If you're struggling today and you're trying to dodge the lightning bolts, <laughs> God has given you a promise and he cannot lie. So comfort one another with these words. I hope that's a comfort to you. But it's also, of course, about the here and now, isn't it? Eternal life. It starts the moment that you give your heart to Jesus. It starts today, right now. And that is more about a quality, isn't it, than a quantity. There's a quality of life that we enjoy as Christian people that the world doesn't share. Do you know, I get so frustrated when I talk to non-believers, you know, phone them up. How's it going? Oh, it's terrible. It's got this problem, that problem, the other problem. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, God could sort all of this out. He really could. Eternal life. We enjoy the benefits. Sometimes we forget that. But I'm so grateful for to God for what he's done in my life. God will never disappoint you. He is with us. So the rest of this passage, let's just read it. I have to go down to verse 9 today. Alan's taking over from there. <laughs> he's looking forward to that. <laughs> Where were we? 
Verse 4. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless, a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. The but what abouts. But what about? But what about? The bishop must be able to deal with that. So the rest of my passage today is about the joy-filled subject of church government. <laughs> Hallelujah. I was saying last night, you know, in, when you do these personality surveys, what are you good at, that kind of thing, I always come out as being good at administration. And it just rankles with me because I just hate administration. <laughs> Just because I keep my pencils in a pot, <laughs> I seem to have a gift of administration <laughs> that dogs me. <laughs> so, you know, it's why I have to run for the train every night because I leave the admin to the last half hour. <laughs> but it is important, I do understand, administration is important. And it's important to get the right balance, isn't it? Because you can have too much admin, and that quenches the spirit. And I can tell you all about that working in a university. <laughs> but you can have too little admin, can't you? You can turn up and say, right, who's doing what today? Oh, nobody's, nobody knows. That's not good either. That dissipates the spirit, doesn't it? When we're just so unstructured that you can drive a coach and horses through what we're doing, and it leaves people open to deception. So we have to know what we're about, and we have to have that level of organization that we can get things done, that we can host the presence of God in a way that glorifies him and that still allows him the space to do what he wants to do. Hallelujah. So church government and administration... Now, one of the problems that we're really going to wrestle with with a passage like this is that the words have changed meaning over time. So, Paul is talking about bishops here. And the problem for us is we think we know what he's talking about. We think he's talking about an elderly gentleman in a funny hat and a stick and a robe who sits maybe in the House of Lords. That's our mental picture of a bishop. Cut the crusts off those sandwiches. The bishop's coming today. (laughs) 
Actually, that's not what a bishop was in New Testament times. Remember, this was all very new. It was in a process of development. And a bishop in the New Testament is nothing more, nothing less than a church elder. The Greek word for bishop is the word episkopi, which means overseer. Someone who can oversee the work of God in a particular city, in this case. And if you read through the New Testament, the bishop is basically identical to the presbyter. Now, that's gone a bit out of fashion, hasn't it? People don't tend to call themselves presbyters these days, although, indeed, Alan is a presbyter. (laughs) Just thought I'd mention that. Check. Before we move on... (laughs) We should really just check out what presbyter means in the Greek, shouldn't we? So presbyter, the Greek word presbyteros, which means man of old time, Alan. Old timer. (laughs) So there you have it. The old timer, the old man. Hallelujah. It's... Yeah. <laughs> it's basically the same thing as a bishop in the New Testament. And indeed, in the church in Philippi, they had a number of bishops there. You know, they had a handful of bishops running the church. The bishops were the elders, were the presbyters, they were the local overseers who ran the church, who oversaw the work of God. That's all it meant, nothing more, nothing less. There is a parallel with the Old Testament, where in the Old Testament times they had something called the Sanhedrin, which was the body of eldership of the nation. And the idea behind that, and the idea really behind the bishop or the presbyter, is that these are mature people, people who've been round the block a bit and have got a bit of life experience under their belt. Now, this is going to shock some of you because this is revelation that I got from the scripture and it's so counter to our culture that some of you might miss this altogether but in the Old Testament in sorry in the Bible old people were actually valued and respected (laughs) over and above young people Now, isn't that totally opposite to our culture where youth is everything? (laughs) It's a total change of perspective. The gray hairs were a mark of maturity and age and respect (laughs) that 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 person had some life experience behind them. Why is it that so many old folks go for the plastic surgery (laughs) these days? Why is it that all the TV evangelists have to have the Botox? (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Welcome to the program. (laughs) Why do they dye their hair? To look young. 
I could understand it if they were dyeing it to look old, making it go grey. But what's all that about? Making it go black. What a different mindset to the Bible. Where the grey hairs were a mark of wisdom and staying power. <laughs> you know, I'm, not, I'm no spring chicken now. It's interesting, isn't it? I was telling Shola yesterday, I had an email from a guy at Christmas, a guy that I haven't seen for 25 years at least, probably more than that, uh, a Nigerian guy actually, a lovely Christian fella. Uh, he lives now in Australia. I didn't know that till I got the email. But it was just like, you know, how are you? How's it been this last 25 years? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it's encouraging, isn't it, when you hear from someone like that, and you've both stayed walking in the faith together all those years. And you can say, well, yeah, my kids are grown up now, etc., etc., etc. You know, this came as a surprise to me, Shola. But I looked up his picture on the internet, you know. Once I knew where he was, I could track him down. And I didn't know this, but Nigerian people go bald as well. <laughs> it's true, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he looked very distinguished, I must say. It's a bit of, just a bit of grey hair, bald on the top. Wow. <laughs> but you know, it was good just to share some life with him after all those years. And you know, I've been round the block a bit myself. You know, we've been praying today, and I, I can tell you, I know what it feels like when you've got a baby in intensive care. I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like when the doctor comes and says, we've done all we can do. There's nothing more to do now. And I know what it feels like to know that although you're a basket case, you've got a church praying behind you. And I know what it feels like for God to bring you through that. And to see that child grow and live and thrive. I know what it feels like when the boss calls you in and says, your job's going and you're on the list to be made redundant. I know what it feels like when you've got two young kids at home and you think you're going to lose your job. I know how that feels. You know, I've worshipped God in the Soviet Union. Yeah, I'm that old. Yeah. We went all the way from West, what was then West Germany to Moscow in a bus. Took us about four days to get there, didn't it? <laughs> and when we got there, wow, we found some incredible saints living under the Soviet Union. I know what it feels like to meet with the saints in a hut in the jungle, surrounded by crocodiles. Some of you have shared that experience. And I know that God has brought us through all those things and many more besides. I know what it's like to be in a car crash. I know what it's like to be in a train crash. I know what it's like to be on an aeroplane that has to do an emergency landing. Not <laughs> <laughs> 
And God has brought me through all those things. <laughs> and he can bring you through too. So the idea in Bible times was that if you've had a bit of life experience, then you have a bit of wisdom that comes from that, that you can't really get from any other way. And those people were valued. They were valued in the early church. And Paul says to Titus, these are the kind of people that you want to be running the church. So we have this uh, list of qualities that Paul is suggesting. These are the kinds of guys you want to recruit to run the church. Now notice, this is really important, these are generalities that he's talking in. So the elders don't have to be old. Most of them probably would be. But sometimes you'll get a younger person who has just got that quality about them that even though they may be quite young, they have the quality to assume some kind of leadership role in the church. Titus was an example of that. He was a young guy, but he had the quality to get the job done. Timothy was another one. Didn't Paul say to Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth? These were young guys, but they had the quality of eldership. So they were exceptional. You know, These were one in a thousand type guys, but they're out there. So, originally, a bishop was an elder, was a presbyter. It was an overseer. It was somebody who had a bit of life experience or had a, a great um, quality of Christian walk who could oversee the church in a particular city. Now, that's where we start from, but, of course, that's not where we've ended up today. So, as the church grew and the thing evolved... The bishop came to be someone who was in charge of the churches in a particular region. And the presbyter came to be somebody who was in charge of a local church. That's how it developed. Now, there's nothing particularly wrong with that. It's not in the Bible. The idea of a bishop being over a region. The bishop was a local guy in the Bible. But, you know, there's nothing particularly wrong with that. It got the job done. But then later on after that, that's where the rot began. And we had what was what is now called the rise of the monarchical episcopacy. <laughs> that went better last night. <laughs> I thought it would be pushing it to do that twice. Episcopacy. Episcopacy. It helps if you look at Dave when you say it. I don't know why. <laughs> and that was basically the concept of church leadership became the idea of the kind of structure that you have with a king. You have a man at the top. And the guy who really developed this idea was a guy called Ignatius. Now, he was an interesting guy. He had a lot to commend him. He was torn apart by wild beasts in the Colosseum. So he was not a slouch in his faith. He was a man of God. He was prepared to lay down his life for the gospel. Although the fact that he was looking forward to that 
was kind of maybe a little bit different to <laughs> where most of us are coming from. But Ignatius uh, promoted a number of key ideas that have affected us down to this day. The first was this idea that the bishop is the man at the top and you have this kind of royalty structure of the king and, and so on. And another one was that he began to use the word Catholic to describe the church. The idea was the Catholic church was the whole church. And of course, we still grapple with those ideas today. The problem with that is that it's left us with a number of unhealthy side effects. So first of all, the overseer now has become the controller in many kinds of situations in church where the overseer is not just looking out for what's going on, but they have to control it all. And that's not so healthy, is it? That's not a good development. And it's not in the Bible. Another problem was that the bishop became involved in secular politics. And they say that as the Roman Empire collapsed, the church actually took over the administration of the empire in a lot of places. And, you know, if you've ever played chess, you'll know that the bishop is the third most powerful piece on the board. After the king, the queen, you have the bishop. And the pawns are the little guys at the front who you sacrifice to get the bishop into position. <laughs> That's not how it's meant to work. No. No, no, Alan, no. It's not how it's meant to work. The bishop is meant to be the servant of all. And the third problem was that there came to be a divide between what you might call the professional Christian class, the bishops and the clergy, and the rest of us dudes, the laity. And that's not in the Bible either. So... If you want a New Testament view of the bishop, he's just a local overseer who helps to run the church. The same as an elder, the same as a, a presbyter. Now, the role could be more than that in our day and age, but we have to be careful that worldliness doesn't creep into our structures. Now, notice that the rest of this passage basically is about the character of the bishop. He must be blameless, he must be all the rest of it, a godly person. And that's important to remember, isn't it? Because as Christians, we're not saved from being miserable sinners to be happy sinners. <laughs> that's not God's will for us. We're called out of being miserable sinners to be saints. And some of us have to begin to pattern that in our lives. So that when non-believers look at us, they say, you know, there really is something different about these people. These people are different. The way they live their lives. They really believe in this stuff. There's a quality about their lives. You know, I was watching the news this week. I, I like to watch Channel 4 News. And they had two different things, two different days. The first day, it was a couple of uh, ladies, actually, who had come on to debate, Christian ladies, who'd come on to debate the whole uh, gay thing that the Church of England has been wrestling with this week. 
So one for, one against. And they just sat there and shouted at each other through the whole interview. And I just thought, man, it doesn't really matter who's right or wrong here. This just doesn't glorify God when two people who call themselves Christians are just shouting at each other in public like this. Wouldn't it be better to be grieved, you know, to take the flack, whatever your position is, and show a little love? Ooh. The second well, couldn't have been more different. It, you might have seen it. It was an old couple. Their, their uh, daughter had been murdered by a paedophile some years ago. He died this week. And this old Irish couple sat there and they said, well, we forgive this guy. We prayed for him. We invited him to meet with us so that we could forgive him face to face. He didn't respond. And we worried about him because we think he may not have repented of his sins when he died. And he may have gone to a lost eternity. What a contrast. It was amazing. And you know, the interviewer let them speak about the blood of Jesus and forgiveness and the cross because of their attitude of heart. Speaking out of their brokenness. So our character really matters in how we witness. We have to walk the walk. And we have to pattern and model what it means to be a saint in this wicked and perverse generation. Now my time is up, so I'm just going to very quickly touch on one thing, because this scripture is often used to say, well, women can't be in ministry, because it talks about the man, uh, the bishop has to be the husband of one wife. And it's often been used to say that women can't be in ministry. I preached on that a, a little while ago, so... I just want to pick up on this today. And the key here is to realize that this list of qualities is not an exact description. It's a generalization. This is the kind of person that you're looking for. How do we know that? Well, if a, uh, the bishop has to be the husband of one wife, then Paul could not have been a bishop, could he? Because he wasn't married. And Jesus, in the scripture, is called the bishop himself, the overseer. Jesus is the great overseer. He wasn't married, was he? So you can't take that absolutely literally. It's about the quality of the guy. The bishop has to be someone who doesn't have a mistress tucked away that he sends dodgy emails to. <laughs> You laugh, it gives you away. Because <laughs> you could be all these things, couldn't you? And you could still be a right nasty piece of work, couldn't you? You could be the husband of one wife. And you could uh, not be greedy for money, but you could still be as legalistic, cold fish, hard-hearted nasty piece of work. It's not an exact description. It's This is the kind of person that you're looking for. Now, it would have been unusual for a woman to be a bishop back then because in those days, that's not uh, how culture worked. The woman would have seven, eight, nine kids, maybe, 
that would keep her pretty busy. She probably wouldn't have time to be a bishop. In that culture, you know, if you were a lady, you had to get married off and you had to produce kids. And that was it. So it was unusual, but it's not unheard of in the scripture. If you search through the scriptures, you'll find that there were many women in different leadership roles. So in our culture, where we're freed from that, and where we don't have to spend all our time just scraping together enough food to, to put bread on the table, and we've got more free time than they could ever dreamt of, of course in our culture, if a woman has that calling on her life into any kind of leadership, she can do that. Why would God give the gifts if he doesn't want them used? Especially in a church where over half the people who go to church are women. Why would we try and fight with one hand tied behind our back? What kind of sense does that make? Now, it still may, may be quite rare for a woman to be called in the ministry because of our culture. But if someone is called into that, whatever role it is, then let them get on with it. And as long as they have that godly character about them, they'll do just fine. And I've got to tell you, you know, one of the, as I say, I'm no spring chicken. And one of the experiences, the benefits of experiencing different churches around the world is that you understand actually this Western mindset we've got is, is the aberration. If you go to other parts of the world, South America, they don't have this hang up. The women are running the show in many places and the men are happy to support them in that. Fantastic women of God. Amazing ministries. The same thing in China. I've never been there, but I've met some Chinese Christians. Fantastic. Mothers of the faith. And the men respect them and honor them and let them get on with the job. So I hope that brings a bit of liberty to you if that's something you've been struggling with. I'm going to stop right there now, but I think we'll do what we did last night, just to round off. <laughs>